Welcome to Illuminating Intellect, a podcast series about the personalities and pursuits of Marquette University faculty members. I'm your host, Dan Myers, the provost of Marquette University. And joining me today, we have Dr. Jen Finn. Well, so let me just start by saying you won a big faculty award uh, last year. And as a result of that, you get to have your picture on my wall all year long. So I walk down the hallway and I see you every day when I'm coming into work. And I notice that you're holding an object in the picture. What is that? Tell me about the significance of that. Okay, so that is actually a replica of a document called the Cyrus Cylinder, uh, which was discovered um, in a uh, what we call a foundation deposit uh, in ancient uh, Iran. And the document sort of looks odd because it's in cuneiform script. So this is uh, ancient, an ancient Babylonian script. And this is a really important document because it's often referred to as the first document of human rights because in it, uh, Cyrus reverses the Babylonian captivity of the Jews uh, that had happened uh, about uh, 150 years uh, before that. So this document was written in about 539 B.C., The interesting story about this is that I bought this replica when I was on a trip to Iran in 2011, and I bought this replica in a hotel lobby for basically the equivalent of $12. It's really hefty. It's nice. You can actually read the cuneiform on it, so it's kind of a cool thing. But the problem is that during that trip to Iran, the Cyrus Cylinder was on loan from the British Museum, so it was in the Tehran Museum at the time, the actual one. And as it happened, the day that I was leaving Iran to come back to America was also the day in which it was to be returned to the British Museum from the Tehran Museum. And I had this thing, because it was the most important thing I bought in Iran, in my carry-on luggage. And as I was going through the airport security, they saw it in my bag, and they thought that I had taken it. <laughs> the real one? Yes. So I was uh, detained, actually, for a couple of hours because I had no receipt, because I bought this thing in a hotel lobby. Uh, it was a very awkward experience because I don't speak Farsi. I wasn't able to get myself out of this, and I had nothing documenting that it was a replica. I mean, I think it was pretty clear after they asked some people who were associated with the museum that it was a replica. It wasn't the real thing, uh, but it did cause a big hullabaloo uh, that this woman coming back to America was trying to steal the Cyrus Cylinder. So that was my kind of fun story about that. I tell my students that uh, that one all the time. But I think it's a really cool thing because that way they can see what these kinds of documents look like because it's not in a shape or form that they're used to. It's, it's a cylinder, and it would have been buried underneath a temple. So no one would have been able to see this thing. So the first document of human rights actually was buried, and no one would have been able to read it except for, in theory, the gods. So this is kind of a different idea for the students, yeah. What is the purpose of burying it then? I mean, it's a document that has meaning for, you know, actual human existence, right? So, and yet they chose to bury it under the ground. What What is the purpose of doing that? 
Well, so it was buried underneath a temple. And so we think uh, this is what they do. They inscribe these documents uh, saying, you know, I am the best thing ever. I'm really nice to the gods in this city. I've done a lot of things, amazing things for the people in this city. And then they bury it under those temples for the gods to read. So when we find them and we publish them as if they're disseminated all over the, the world, we have to sort of step back and think, no, actually, people would not have seen these kinds of things. And so would there be copies of them somewhere that would guide people who are ruling over others or, you know, in, in some legal um, operation or something? It, it would, how would the content be used in, in human society? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the one thing that I can think of is uh, one of the first Persian kings, Darius I, has a very long document that he inscribed on the top of a mountain. So nobody can see this thing. I went there. There were shepherds sort of leading their sheep underneath this mountain, and you cannot see anything. So again, this is written for the gods, but we do know that he did have copies of it disseminated in other parts of his empire, but he changed the wording so that it is particular to whichever place uh, the people are from. So uh, in Babylon, it had different symbols on it, and it would have had sort of different references in it uh, to make it uh, interesting and applicable to different constituencies within his empire. So these people are really adept at political operation even, you know, before the time of Christ. Jen, tell me a little bit about what the core of your research is about. What are are the main things that you're investigating in your research and uh, that you've been working on? Maybe what's coming next in in the work that you've been... So I guess I... I have a bit of a problem because I like to work on so many different things at once. Uh, but in in general, I think you could probably say that I work on great man history in different iterations. So uh, my first book was on um, how people in the ancient Near East who worked with the king uh, found ways to sort of subtly criticize him when they were in the, his employ and knew that they couldn't do that without punishment. Uh, So I found some documents that only exist in one copy that indicate that they were sort of writing sort of farcical texts about the king using the same language that they would use to write royal inscriptions on his behalf. So that was kind of an interesting project. Um, Now I am just working on finishing a rough draft of a book on Alexander the Great, Uh, And I wrote my first Ph.D. thesis on Alexander the Great, so we've been together for a very long time, and I'm looking forward to breaking up with him. This book is a great man history, too, in that I'm looking at the way in which Alexander uh, revises history as he goes through his campaigns. So uh, it's a book on revisionist history, and I look at the ways in which he takes the mythologies of other Greek nations, of other Mediterranean nations, uh, even of Near Eastern ones, and sort of uh, adapts them to the history that he wants everybody to see as he's going through his campaigns. And he's very effective at this, uh, and it really does sort of change history for himself in the way that he's perceived. And then it also changes the history, the narrative for people uh, who came before him. So he really is sort of fundamentally changing uh, the way that people view uh, history in his own time. And then also, uh, especially in the Roman period, 
because the Romans are obsessed with Alexander the Great. They all want to be Alexander the Great. They all want their hair to look like Alexander the Great. And so uh, this is is something that really has, it resonates for a long period after his own time. So that's that's what this book is. Um, so Alexander Great, he was kind of like the teen idol of the ancient world then. Uh, you, you are right. Alexander was, uh, everybody loved him, really. And this fascination with Alexander lasts basically until he dies, when all of his successors fight over who gets to have his tomb. I mean, everybody's dragging his body all over Egypt and other places uh, in the Mediterranean uh, to sort of have a relic of Alexander and thereby legitimacy. Um, And this lasts until basically the last emperor of Rome. I mean, this is a five or eight hundred year fascination with this guy because he conquered the known world and he had it all under his domain. Uh, And nobody could do that after him. I mean, even his successors couldn't do it because they had to break up his empire into different parts. So he was really sort of this figure around which everybody based uh, their ideas about what could be possible in the ancient world. But as I said, I have a lot of other interests. So at the moment, I'm really excited about uh, an article that I'm writing. Uh, Actually, I'm co-authoring this with an undergraduate student that came out of a class that I taught last semester uh, called Ancient Histories Unsolved Mysteries. And we're working on tourist traps in the ancient world. And it's a really, really cool project. Uh, We found uh, a bunch of tourist traps that appear to have been sort of created by uh, Caesar and Augustus in, uh, in service of their sort of imperial propaganda campaign. What would an ancient tourist trap look like? I mean, did they have like rides and stuff or? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So actually we're calling it a Mediterranean theme park, uh, but there are no, there are no rides. There, there, (laughs) there are some things that are kind of close though. So for instance, the one that would probably be uh, most familiar to people uh, is Caesar and Augustus go to Troy and they say, okay, you know, this is a great place that has a great history. Achilles was here. Ajax was here, etc. And they build what's called New Troy. And they bring people here. And they have, as far as we can tell by our sources, tourist guides who show them this is where Achilles died. This is where Hector died. So it is kind of like Disney World uh, in the ancient world. And so we found four more of those places uh, that this kind of thing seems to be happening. And so we're sort of mapping this out and showing that this is a prerogative of Caesar and Augustus. Now, what would have been their purpose for setting these up? I mean, was it a, a, a way of creating or generating money or or, or is it, it for political influence? Why, why would they have done that? Yeah, in some sense, this is also a revisionist history thing. So what we're finding is that what they do is they connect all of these tourist traps to either uh, Alexander the Great, because he is the conqueror of the known world. So they're sort of inserting him into their own paradigm and saying, look, we're doing all of the things that Alexander did except for better. Uh, And then also Aeneas. Aeneas is the sort of mythical founder um, of Rome, or at least one of them besides Romulus and Remus. But the important thing about Aeneas is that he came from Troy. So it connects the Romans to Troy. It makes them look as if they're just as ancient as the Greeks who fought at Troy. And so what I think they're doing is Caesar and Augustus are saying, look, this is an empire. This is a new thing. We're restoring the Republic. 
which might not be so popular with people because they don't want an empire. They want a republic still. And so in order to sort of help people feel more comfortable with that, they insert this Roman antiquity that didn't exist before into these places that people can visit and think, oh, okay, Aeneas and and the Trojan War and Augustus and Caesar, everything is just as it was in the ancient times. So we should feel comfortable with our new normal. That's sort of the idea behind it, I think. This is what we're finding in our research. We've actually been doing a lot of research on Disney World and Disneyland, neither of which I've been to, so I can't really speak to it. Um, but they have created these sort of uh, thematological portions of these parks that are meant to sort of remind you of America's manifest destiny or America's antiquity. And this really came up as an idea during the Cold War where people were feeling sort of really uncomfortable with the position of America. Uh, so Disney World is meant to sort of be a security blanket or some kind of comfort for people when they feel like America is not in the right place. Um, and so this is what I think is happening here uh, when we're in coming into a new era of empire that's very unfamiliar to, to the Romans. Let me go back uh, then and ask you how you got interested in your research in the first place, because uh, I'm curious how that started and how it developed. So I took Latin in high school. This is how this began. And the only reason I did that is because my sister did. My sister's about 10 years older than me, and I just wanted to do everything that she did. And she had taken Latin in high school, so I said, okay, I'm going to do it too. Um, and very quickly I realized that Latin is a puzzle. It seems like they can just put things wherever they want to. Uh, the verb in the sentence can be 10 years away from the, the nouns that go with it. Uh, and I loved that, that it was just so hard. I really like to do things that are really hard. So after um, four years of Latin in high school, I went to Latin camp, which happened to be in Rome. So Latin it, camp. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, it was through the University of Dallas. Uh, so I went uh, to Latin camp in Rome. And I, I really sort of knew this already, but I recognized then that it was like, this is a magical field of study. I mean, I get to go to all these wonderful places. I get to read these dead languages. I never have to take an oral exam in a language because they're all dead and nobody speaks it anymore. So that was kind of good. Um, but uh, after that, I went to Michigan for my undergrad and I declared right away as a Latin major. There are not many of them, in case you're wondering. Um, so uh, I was doing the Latin stuff. Uh, and then, you know, as part of that course, you have to take uh, classical civilization classes. So I took some of those, and then I became a double major in Latin and classical civilizations. It doesn't really seem like there's a huge difference between those, but enough. And while I was doing that, I uh, took a course on ancient warfare with m who became my PhD thesis advisor, David Potter. So then I decided I was obsessed with warfare. Um, and so then I got an MA at Columbia in Latin, and then uh, I went back to Michigan for my PhD in Greek and Roman history. And I said right away, I want to work on warfare. So uh, Alexander the Great is a good person to do this with because he fights a lot. Mm -hmm. um, though, you know, the Greeks and Romans fight a lot all the time. So I could have really chosen any period of, of ancient history. But I started doing all of this reading on his weaponry and uh, battle tactics and this kind of stuff. And I was like, I am falling asleep reading this. Like, okay, you know, the battle was amazing. I understand, you know, how he finds ways to defeat the enemy, even when he's outnumbered, etc. 
but I cannot see myself writing an entire thesis on something like that. What I realized is the thing that was most interesting to me is the way that he interacted with people and traditions of the Near East while he was in Persia fighting against uh, the King Darius III. So then I said, okay, you know, I'm really interested in this Near Eastern stuff, and they write all of their documents in cuneiform, and they don't teach that to me in the Greek and Roman history department. So I'm going to ask them if they'll let me get an MA in Near Eastern studies so that I can read the literally three cuneiform documents that relate to Alexander the Great. So I made this argument probably wasn't necessary for me to have to be able to read this in order to do my research. But I started to realize how important it was to have a good theoretical background in both the ancient Near East and Greece and Rome in order to understand their contact with one another. I needed to know as much as they knew about each other. Uh, so I got this MA in Near Eastern Studies and I said, you know what, I, I can't be done here. I have to get another PhD. <laughs> so I asked Michigan and I said, hey, you know, I, I know that I'm going to finish my PhD here, but can I stay for another one <laughs> to sort of finish that MA that I'd started and then just complete a PhD thesis? another one. And they said, sure, except for we can't act like you're starting over. We only have enough funding for you as if you, you know, were a regular PhD student the first time around. And this is pretty normal because in the U.S., you know, getting two PhDs is exceptional and it's kind of viewed as superfluous, really. You know, if you have one, you've got a lot of education and that's really all you should need. And so they said, you're going to have to find outside funding at some point for this. And I said, okay, fine, whatever. You know, you don't sort of think about the future too much when you agree to these things. Uh, but luckily, I found a program in Germany uh, that was started the first year uh, as I was completing the second PhD at Michigan uh, called Distant Worlds. So this, the idea behind this was that you were going to have two to three years to complete a PhD program in Munich on some aspect of ancient history. So it was really quite ancient all the way really into like the medieval period. So there was a lot of time covered. Um, and I got in. So I went to Munich to finish that second PhD uh, because for them doing that, they, they have to. In order to become a professor, they have to complete a habilitation, which is essentially a second PhD thesis. So for them, they were like, okay, sure, why is this odd in America? Come do it here. Uh, so that meant that I spent two amazing years in Munich, and I learned a lot. My German is still not very good, uh, but I completed the second PhD there uh, in two years, and it really didn't sort of add a whole lot uh, to the time to the timeline that I had already had. Yeah, I, I'm curious how um, you know, maybe when you're you know, interacting with students and you're and you're uh, making history relevant to to people in the current world, right? And and so I'm wondering how something like that, for example, uh, gets translated, uh, perhaps by you or by students, into what's going on in the world around us these days. And you know, there's there's a lot in there about sort of truth telling and revising things and you know fake news or whatever it is. I'm going to have to be a little careful here because, you know, politics are intimately sort of wrapped up in all of this stuff. Uh, but what I can say is that um, when Donald Trump became president, the way in which I taught the Western Civilization course changed fundamentally. 
Um, so we started talking about various emperors in the Roman Empire and their uh, seemingly odd habits in different ways uh, that resonated more uh, with the students. So, for instance, we have one emperor who likes to go to his villa on the Bay of Naples a lot. Um, and they sort of thought to themselves, oh, that seems a little familiar. It's essentially a analog of Mar-a-Lago, right? So um, a- another sort of macrocosmic experience of this uh, was I taught, I did not plan it this way, but I taught in, let's see, it would have been the spring semester of 2017, uh, a seminar course on the ancient villain. And this was interesting uh, because what we did is we defined what a villain is, what a hero is, what an anti-hero, an anti-villain, all of these different categories. And we read a lot of ancient texts in which people are villainized or gods are villainized. And we saw a lot of crossover to current political events, you know, I mean, how this is being done in the media now, uh, when these types of things might be exaggerations and when they aren't and why people do this for political motivation. Uh, In the ancient world, it's really not different is what you find uh, from the modern world. And so this kind of thing uh, is is really actually very relevant. Uh, And I like to show the students. So, for instance, we talk about the fall of the Roman Empire, and uh, I like to to tell them that this is actually precipitated by a immigrant crisis because the Romans uh, refused to let immigrants across their borders, and this brought barbarian armies uh, to to play, and uh, it precipitated the downfall of the Roman Empire. And when students see it that way, I mean, it really is sort of a matter of verbiage. You just have to talk to them about it in a certain way. Then they see that these types of things can have really, really grandiose um, consequences that that can be mapped onto their modern world. And, and that helps them sort of pick up both the ancient side and the modern side uh, a lot better, I think. Let me just ask you about what's next uh, coming down the pike for you in terms of your research work. Okay, so I'm going to continue working in the on the revisionist angle, but in different periods of the ancient world now. So, for instance, I want to do uh, an article on Nero um, when he... Uh, allegedly starts this fire at Rome uh, in 64 CE in order to build his golden house uh, all over the remnants of of the city. Uh, What he does is actually burn down a lot of the so-called good history of the Roman Republic. Um, And so I really want to sort of look at what that means to get rid of good history that people want to remember. Um, and what this means, uh, what this sort of negative revisionism means for uh, people in the ancient world and also in the modern world. So what does it mean when we, you know, tear down these statues of our heroes? And what does that do to the memory of the future and this kind of thing? Um, So I'm going to keep working on sort of smaller projects. I think I might take a little break from writing books for a minute um, and and focus on those kinds of projects. So tell me a little bit about um, some of the things you do away from your time here as a professor. Um, I uh, like to say that I moonlight as a triathlete. So um, I swim, bike, and run. 
I like to travel. This is a nice thing about being an ancient historian is that I have to I have to go to Greece, Rome, and the ancient Near East uh, all the time. Um, so I've done an archaeological dig in Pompeii, which was really cool. Um, I spent a month in Iran traveling around um, the sites there, and it was really wonderful. I felt like I was doing the Alexander the Great tour, so that was very cool. So since you're a triathlete, you know, you like to conquer by land, by sea, and we'll call the bike the horseback. So you're just like Alexander the Great, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think he must be my spirit animal. That must be why I work on Alexander. So yeah, I mean, I I do that. We like to travel. Um, I really am sort of unashamedly obsessed with my dogs. One of them is nine and a half. Uh, Her name is Boudicca. Uh, Boudicca is an ancient Celtic warrior princess, in case that is surprising to anyone that I would name my dog after an ancient thing. And uh, the other's name is Arrow, which is short for aerodynamic. So he is a triathlon dog. Um, And the two of them are best friends, and we just really like to hang out with them and take them everywhere with us, and it's kind of fun. Um, And Arrow really is a triathlon dog because every time uh, he sees us get on our bikes, he gets very excited and cries and barks and everything. So he's on the right page. Uh, My husband's an engineer uh, in the area, so we both sort of live and work in Milwaukee, so we like to to have adventures in Milwaukee. Uh, I made him go skydiving with me earlier this summer. I decided it was the summer of fun because I'm on sabbatical in the fall, so I really wanted to sort of take advantage of it. So I'm making him do a lot of bucket list items that I think he's not ready to do quite yet. Um, but but that's what, what we've been doing. Um, and I travel back to Michigan uh, pretty often to see my family, uh, and also because the triathlons there are flatter than they are in Wisconsin. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, the triathlon takes up a lot of time. Uh, I don't really get a chance to read books that are not academic very often. But I do uh, like reality TV a good bit. <laughs> I won't lie. <laughs> you moonlight as a triathlete, but that makes it sound like it's a, a, a low-level amateur pursuit. But you actually win these things, I understand. And you, you uh, won one recently, correct? And this was after you had donated a kidney just recently before that. So, wow, I think is, <laughs> is the appropriate response to that. But tell us a little bit about that. Okay, um, so I guess this is a bit of a long story, but the whole thing actually started when I got to Marquette. I think the first week I started working here, my dad got sick. Um, and so this is a, a quite a long story. He uh, got sepsis, a blood infection, um, from trying to get the cat out from under the bed. He stubbed his thumb, that got infected. It infected his entire bloodstream about three months later. Um, then he had to have an aortic valve replacement because of the sepsis. And this uh, set off a very rare, one in a million literally, uh, autoimmune disorder uh, that attacks your lungs and your kidneys. Um, Thankfully, he didn't have his lungs involved. Otherwise, it might have been worse than it was. Um, But his kidneys failed very quickly, uh, and he had to go on dialysis in December of my second year here. Um, And so originally I said, you know, I would like to give you my kidney. I know that I've got two. I only need one. 
we're probably a match because we're family, though uh, I found out later that that's not always the case. It's actually very hard to find a match in some cases. Um, and he refused initially, uh, but then after about six months of dialysis, I think he said, you know, okay, maybe it'd be okay. He found out that the risks to me were were uh, pretty minimal. And so um, we set off on this sort of journey last August to get me tested to be a kidney donor. Um, and in December of 2017, so about six or seven months ago, uh, we went through with the operation at Mayo Clinic. Um, and he is doing great. He's living his best life now, which I think is amazing. It's really, uh, it's really a miracle. Um, and I very quickly set my mind to getting back to triathlon as quickly as I could. Um, and uh, three and a half months after the operation, I did a half Ironman. So that's a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile ride, and a half marathon. Um, I didn't do it quickly, but I wanted to sort of show myself that I was going to be okay. Um, and so then I got into sort of more serious training after that. And, you know, as, as with every summer, I, uh, really sort of set myself to training hard and, uh, I was pretty successful in a few triathlons this season, um, including one a couple of weeks ago. So, um, honestly, one of the reasons that I like to talk about this, um, because I think some people are getting kind of sick of hearing me talk about how I donated my kidney to my dad. Um, even though everybody in the history department and really sort of around the university was so supportive, it was really wonderful. Um, I know that one of our female basketball players at the moment is looking for a kidney. Um, and I saw this, this advertisement uh, for it on Facebook. And I really just want people to know that you can sort of give one of your organs and get back to all of your normal activities. Uh, Obviously, I can't donate to her since I only have one left. Um, (laughs) But I I just sort of want to use it as a platform uh, to help her and others if I can. Because even if you're not a match for that person in particular, you can participate in a, a swap where somebody that, you know, does have compatible blood type and and antibodies and whatnot uh, can receive your kidney and then, you know, you get a kidney from somebody who is compatible with you. Um, And those can set off amazing chains where you can save 60 lives, 70 lives. So uh, this is an important thing. It's not for everybody, um, but I think it's something that, that is good to sort of get out there. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's a very personal and compelling story. Um, when you were recovering after the you donated your kidney to your uh, father, d- did the did the docs try to dissuade you from going back on this uh, training regimen to get ready for the triathlon? No, uh, I made it pretty clear before I did this that that was going to be a prerequisite that I was going to be able to return to training. Uh, They gave me a timeline of how I could do things safely, um, and most of it actually had to do with lifting things. So I had a restriction on that for a a good deal of time. But uh, I was jogging again pretty slowly at like two weeks, so it was was fast. Um, I know that other people have pushed it even harder than that and run marathons after six weeks or whatever, but, I mean, I didn't want to hinder 
my own ability to heal because you know it is a you can't see it on the outside but there are major things going I mean you've got a hole where the kidney used to be and all your organs have to move back you know into new positions and this kind of thing um, so they knew that this was the goal um, and they haven't had a ton of of serious athletes do this kind of thing but they have had enough where they've had experience and successful experience now uh, I, I'm sure going through this with your father must have been, you know, uh, very uh, powerful experience, and, and and I'm sure bonded you in a way that you know you hadn't been uh, possibly before. I'm wondering how that kind of experience changes your relationship with your with your dad. Yeah, that no, you're right. That's a difficult question, though, um, because I think we're still so new with it that we can't really know. Uh, I had one of my students who had a sister who donated her kidney to her father say, you know, um, it it didn't really feel any different afterwards, but then when the other person passes away, then you really feel like something of you has been lost because literally one of your organs was in that person. Um, you know, my dad and I were always really close um, anyway, and I think that... I was just happy to be able to help. You know, you watch somebody that you care about sort of go through this long process of being unwell and just having to, to go to dialysis three days a week, four days a week. And uh, if, if you can help, you really want to help. And most of the time you are helpless to do something. But in this case, I, I was able to do something. And I think if, you know, I had known about that, I would have given my kidney to anybody who needed it just because you can really see how much it changes that person's life. I mean, it really brings them back. I mean, the color returns to their face within minutes. I mean, it's really something amazing. Uh, so I was just glad that I was able to do that um, because you really do have to be sort of the per- picture-perfect, healthy person in order to do this. And I thought to myself, okay, this is why I've been training all these years, and I just didn't know it. You know, so um, it, it was just a really cool thing uh, to be able to do. Um, I wouldn't say that we're closer because of it, actually. I mean, he might even be annoyed with me because I always text him and say, are you drinking enough water today? What is your creatinine today? Uh, and he probably wants me to leave him alone. <laughs> Checking up on your own kidney or is <laughs> Well, no, he calls it our kidney. So oh. he, he thinks that it is part of both of us. Uh, uh, and he, I think he had a biopsy on it after the first six months or something. And he asked me, did you feel anything? You know, <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, I don't think he never get. He says he doesn't get annoyed with me asking all those questions because I think he's just grateful to be able to live his life finally again. So, um, you know, I just I think it's a, a cool thing to do. As I said, it's not for everybody. We still aren't 100 percent sure of the risks down the road uh, for kidney donors, but uh, I'm just going to do the best I can to take care of myself and hope for the best. Well, thanks for visiting with me today, Jen. It was really interesting to hear about all the things going on in your life. I'm sure you're an inspiration to your students in many different ways, and uh, we really value that here at Marquette because it's more than just teaching. It's it's being part of uh, people's lives in a really whole way. So uh, it's great that you were able to share that with us. I'm so pleased. Thank you all out there for joining us on our podcast. You've been listening to Illuminating Intellect. Once again, I'm your host, Dan Myers, provost of Marquette University. Illuminating Intellect was produced by Tim Segelski. 
You can hear more episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for the word Marquette. For more Marquette podcasts, including Marquette in Milwaukee and We Are Marquette, visit marquette.edu slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.